When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. French stinks of shallow buried dead, where Tommy stands at the periscope, tired out after nine months he's shed, all fear, all faith, all hate, all hope. Robert Graves Hello and welcome to the When Diplomacy Fell special on World War One, episode 20.9, 1918. It has been a long, long road to get here, folks, so if you've forgotten our considerable journey, you should really reacquaint yourself, because it is quite a story, I'm sure you'll agree. Today is the day we conclude our World War I special, so thanks for being a part of the reason I began this podcast all those months ago. Before I break into nostalgic song, I think we should just jump right into it, so I will now take you to the year 1918. 1918 was meant to be the year that Germany, free from its Russian commitments, could finally bring its full force to bear against the western allies of Britain and France before the manpower of America could make any kind of impact. It was an ambitious plan, and totally the opposite of the original Schleifen plan that had brought the country to make war in the first place. If you remember back to the first few episodes where I lamented on the planned German military strategy, then you'll see what I mean. In the summer of 1914, Germany expected to take France quickly out of the equation, restrict Britain at sea, and then turn towards Russia, with the help of Austria, and wage war against it, probably for a few months, until Germany realised its full potential as master of the European continent. Then, if required, it could turn its attention towards Britain, or if Britain was not an issue anymore, look outside of Europe to the rest of the world. But in reality, Germany was bogged down in Belgium and halted in France by the time Russia was ready for war against it, and thus Germany settled into varying degrees of defence in the west and attack in the east and vice versa, all the while adapting to its new allies' demands in Turkey and Bulgaria and adjusting to the new fronts in the Balkans and Italy. World War I was as clear a demonstration as any to the German general that no matter how hard one plans, war is ultimately a series of unpredictable events that one survives not by attempting to predict beforehand, but by adapting to as best as one can. Imperial, and unjust as their policies and motives may have been, one cannot discount the German soldier's ability to fight total war for over four years. Nor can one fault the fact that the German state was able to exist as the virtual enemy of the world, at the centre of the world, for four long years. Not only that, 
but by the end of 1917, neutral observers could reasonably believe that German tenacity had paid off, and that, after years of flying by the seat of their pants, the German Empire was capable of landing the killing blow to the Allies in 1918, or at the very least, making enough waves as to end the war on favourable enough terms. We, of course, in hindsight, know that this did not happen. But that's not all I'm going to cover today. As you may have noticed, we go a bit longer today, by way of necessity in my view, because so much happens in 1918 and beyond, and, as someone who likes to wrap things up effectively, I feel like we cannot end this World War I epic without a satisfying conclusion. So that's what I'll be aiming for. We're going to be joined by a number of sources, some of which you've seen pop up in every episode so far, others you may not recognise, some you may remember from earlier episodes, and one which is going to appear purely as an example of a bad historical source. Let's get into it now, with our first new source, entitled 1918, Year of Victory, The End of the Great War and the Shaping of History, which is an essential collection of essays edited by Ashley Ekins, the first essay of which, written by Jay Winter, entitled The Road to Victory, notes on the situation greeting the world as 1917 wound down and the war bled into another year. Quote, The German war effort unravelled completely in 1918, but that process was not visible to many observers at the start of the year. On the contrary, a neutral observer in November 1917 would never have predicted the collapse of the Central Powers precisely 12 months later. To understand the German defeat, we must turn to the nature of the German state and the disastrous military, political and economic decisions taken by the German leadership since the start of the war. German defeat was built into the structure of the war effort of the Kaiser Reich. The last episode gave a good introduction to the enigmatic duo of Ludendorff and Hindenburg, and what they contributed to the German war effort during their virtual monopoly on all German forms of power, be they military, economic or domestic. The beliefs that the duo held truest to heart were that all resources should be mobilised within the German country for the purpose of winning the war. In short, the duo pretty much transformed Germany into a country that was fighting a total war. This was a necessity because Germany's enemies were extremely industrially powerful. Britain, for example, was churning out 10,000 machine guns and 100 tanks a month, figures Germany could not hope to match unless they mobilised all means at their disposal for the sole purpose of defeating the enemy. Added to this, the new lands conquered or handed over to Germany in the Russian Peace Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, which we'll cover in a bit, could be used as prime agricultural land, to offset the damage being actively done by the British blockade. The duo were able to convince the Kaiser at the best of times that Germany could and would match and outproduce its enemies, but their optimism was misplaced. As we'll see later on, as the German spring offensives of 1918 incur heavy losses to both the Allies and Germans, the Allies will be capable of replacing their losses, while the Germans will not. Positivity was the German consensus from about November 1917 to March 1918. For those five months, it seemed as though the Great War, though they were now fighting it backwards according to the Schlieffen Plan, was winnable because Russia was gone and the Western Allies would soon have to contend with the full force of the Central Powers. Italy was stable in its moment of crisis, and the Balkan fronts were being held by a combination of Austro-Bulgarian German-Turkish soldiers. 
Just like it did in every other year, the Marne in 1914, Ypres in 1915, the Somme and Verdun in 1916, Passchendaele in 1917, the Western Front would be decisive in 1918. But first, a peace had to be formulated with the Russians, if it could even be called Russia anymore, because those crazy socialists were calling it something else entirely nowadays. When the October revolutionaries seized the majority of Russia in uh, November, the Russian Civil War began, which, as I alluded to last time, involved not just Russians fighting Russians, but also various foreign delegations of troops fighting alongside the whites or anti-communists for both influence in the country and for the prevention of a new radical form of government establishing itself that could threaten the legitimacy of their own states. In light of this chaotic situation, the obvious necessity for peace with the Central Powers may let an authorised negotiations and armistice talks with the reps of the Central Powers to be made in Brest-Litovsk, in the modern-day Belarusian border city of Brest with Poland. Robert Asprey, in his book The German High Command at War, Hindenburg, Ludendorff and the First World War, notes of the situation. Quote, In late November, the new Russian commander-in-chief, Nikolai Krylenko, telegraphed an armistice offer agreed to by the OHL. A few days later, Russian delegates arrived at Brest-Litovsk to begin negotiations conducted by General Max Hoffmann and Foreign Minister Richard von Kuhlmann on Germany's behalf and by Count Ottokar Zernin on Austria-Hungary's behalf. In mid-December, the delegates agreed on a month-long armistice while peace negotiations continued at Brest-Litovsk. End quote. In this often forgotten period of history, because people often discard this approximately nine-month window in which German demands were largely agreed to due to the later Treaty of Versailles, one can get a fascinating glimpse into what might have been had Germany been the overall victor of the Great War, since the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk contains not just deals with Russia, but also denotes the planned German strategy for dealing with the new eastern and northeastern European lands now no longer under Russian hegemony. Of interest to Germany were the Baltic states, while Poland was something of a bone of contention to the Austro-German camp, who each had their own idea on how the country should be ruled and partitioned, and what purpose it should serve as either a buffer state, a fully-fledged independent state, or monarchic vassal once peace returned to Europe. As John Lee, in his book The Warlords, Hindenburg and Ludendorff, explains, however, Poland was a source of contention not just between Austria and Germany, but also between the German governing apparatus itself, and, not just recently, but as far back as 1915. Quote, the fate of a conquered Poland had long been a source of feuding between the OHL and the Chancellor, and increasingly between Germany and Austria. Ever since 1915, Ludendorff had planned to create an independent Polish state, detached from Russia and in an alliance with Germany. Bethmann Hallweg planned a large Poland as part of a post-war settlement. Ludendorff wanted a smaller state immediately, along the same lines as Napoleon's Grand Duchy of Warsaw, which he hoped would be the recruiting ground for Polish divisions to serve alongside the German army on the Eastern Front. End quote. The duo argued that, because Poland's sole purpose was to provide Germany with military resources, it was a military concern and thus a concern solely of the OHL, or German High Command. Austria had its own plans for Poland, though, plans which severely compromised what the duo saw as a strategic security of Germany in its border areas. As John Lee notes, quote, 
Austria-Hungary responded to these German moves by declaring that Austrian Poland, Galicia, would achieve full autonomy under the Empire. Hindenburg was particularly incensed at this, and wrote a very strong note to the Chancellor in which he expressed the exasperation that many German leaders felt towards their ally. By not interfering in the internal affairs of Austria-Hungary before the war and during the war, our conduct of the war has constantly been made more difficult. If we continue to be afraid of such interference in an area where our interests are directly at stake, then we give up all hope of strengthening Austria-Hungary, and the question arises then, why are we still fighting for Austria at all? Poland was not the only source of contention between the two states. Germany had always thought of Austria as the lagging, costly, behind-the-scenes stalwart of a state, which consistently needed motivation and military support against Russia, and which could not entirely be trusted upon to remain faithful to the Central Powers' cause, as was demonstrated by the Austrian overtures to France for a peace treaty in late 1916, when the Central Powers and Allies were at the end of their respective ropes. The feeling was largely mutual, however, in that Austria thought Germany an arrogant dictatorship ruled by the appalling mixture of a petulant Kaiser and an ignorant high command, which always seemed to bring the wrath of the rest of the world against her. Brazil and America had entered the war in 1917 from across the Atlantic, as had Greece in the Balkans. Now the question remained as to whether Austria could really hold the fabric of its state together long enough to see the war through to a successful conclusion because the Polish, Czech, Slovak, Italian, Bosnian, Montenegrin, Macedonian and Italian minorities ensured that Austria was on borrowed time so long as it engaged in a losing war that they had no real stake in. Mid-1917 had seen something of a crisis emerge in the Central Power Camp, as both Austria and Germany saw their national spirits slump to all-time low levels as their populations were sick of a war they no longer had any romantic or patriotic interest in, and as the endless restrictions and shortages put everyone's lives in a constant state of misery. Primary sources are of particular interest during this time, as Hindenburg wrote to Bethmann Hallwig in an effort to bolster his colleagues' spirits. A revival of our internal strength will be the most potent means of persuading our enemies of the futility of prolonging the war until their own means of existence are in danger of destruction. On the other hand, every complaint of disappointed hopes, every sigh of exhaustion and longing for peace on our part or that of our allies, any talk of the alleged impossibility of stunning another winter campaign, can only have the effect of prolonging the war. But Bethmann Hallwig was not in the most positive of moods during this time, and he let Hindenburg know it. Hindenburg, instead of trying to reason with Bethmann Hallwig, decided to simply tell the Kaiser that Bethmann Hallwig was no longer suitable as a Chancellor of Germany, and that he should be replaced. Our greatest anxiety at this moment, however, is a decline in the national spirit. It must be revived, or we shall lose the war. Even our allies need a powerful tonic, otherwise there is danger of their deserting us. For this, it is necessary to solve these economic problems which are the most difficult and are of the greatest importance for the future. The question arises whether the Chancellor is capable of solving these problems, and they must currently be solved or we are lost. When early moves toward an armistice with Russia were made by Pariah Centre Party member Matthias Erzberger in June 1917, a crisis ensued, as Erzberger leaked military details to the Russian reps in order to sweeten the deal. The duo could once again point to Bethmann Hallwig as the problem in this case, since he had allowed such events to happen, 
but the Kaiser remained unconvinced by the duo's argument that Bethman Holwig had to go, especially if it meant that his position would be filled by either Hindenburg or Ludendorff. On July 6, 1917, an event occurred in the German Reichstag, or Parliament, which is notable for its ringing truths of the German situation at the time. John Lee explains the situation. Quote, on July 6, 1917, Erzberger stood up at a meeting of the Central Committee of the Reichstag and delivered a stunningly honest speech. He declared that the expectation of victory, based on an unrestricted submarine warfare campaign, was perfectly hopeless, and that there was no chance of Germany winning the war, that Germany's allies were in an even more perilous state than she was herself, and that Germany should seek peace without conquests immediately. End quote. The Kaiser, in a moment of clarity, summoned the duo and instructed them to stop interfering in domestic political matters that were of no concern to them whatsoever, while the duo fired back that Germany was being undermined by pacifist forces who were seeking to bring her out of the war by any means necessary. The friction lingered for a time, and the duo eventually got their way when, upon blackmailing the Kaiser with threats of their own resignation, Wilhelm II was forced to accept the resignation of Bethmann Hallwig in mid-July 1917. While the Kerensky offensive was grinding to a halt in the east, the duo were enjoying their position as the dominant force in Germany. They were too valuable for the Kaiser to remove them. They threatened resignation if he directly opposed them, and all rivals within upper German circles had been pressured into resignation themselves. The result was that Bethman Holly's replacement was the feeble former head of the wartime food office, George A. Michaelis, a man who was immediately supported by the duo as their firm friend and sympathiser. Michaelis was also sent a letter by the duo which attempted to justify the reasoning behind the removal of Bethman Holwig, as John Lee runs through them. Quote, His feeble foreign policy and failure to consult directly with German high command were high on the list but it also included his dithering over the start of the submarine campaign, the whole fiasco over the governance of Poland, his poor record on the future of Belgium, his failure to mobilise the people and the economy for total war, his poor record as a propagandist, his failure to control strikes, and the damage he caused to the prestige of the monarchy. It is not hard to see this memo as a stark warning to Michaelis on the fate of chancellors who do not follow the duo's line. End quote. With complete power at their fingertips, the duo felt confident enough in their position now to make a determined effort against their foreign enemies once more. Passchendaele was an offensive mired in awful losses for both sides, and although the duo certainly despaired at the casualties and implications of those casualties on the German ability to make war, as well as the impact it would have on Germany's domestic attitude at home, a light at the end of the tunnel remained in the form of the Russian armistice, long since dreamed of, but only recently realised as a certainty. From December 1917 to February 1918, the German, Austrian, Bulgarian and Turkish reps were met by the Russian delegation in Brest-Litovsk. The aforementioned Austrian rep, Count Zernin, was desperate for a Russian peace, indeed a worldwide peace, that would preserve Austria and Europe. It didn't even have to be a peace in which territorial gains were made by Austria. Thus, Zernin felt no such impulses as the German delegation, who believed that vast swathes of territory were theirs for the taking. John Lee gives the best account of the intrigue present at the meetings between the various delegations. Quote, Count Zernin was quite desperate for peace at any price, and would settle for no annexations or claims for compensation. 
It was he who promoted the idea of turning the meetings into a general peace conference by inviting all the Entente powers to the talks. The Bolsheviks treated the whole thing as an enormous exercise in spreading revolutionary propaganda. Backed by the rapacious Turks and Bulgarians, Germany's military leaders made the most sweeping demands. Ludendorff briefed Hoffmann to hold out for the Russian evacuation of Finland, Estonia, Livonia, Bessarabia, Eastern Galicia and Armenia, for the German annexation of Lithuania, Courland, Riga and the Baltic Islands, for Poland to be associated with Germany, for compensation to German prisoner of war and for a strong role in the Russian economy. End quote. Of course, the duo got involved in negotiations. Ludendorff and Hindenburg dreaming of a kind of Eastern German Empire, whereby Slavs and Poles would do the heavy lifting, and Germany could prepare for her ultimate showdown with Russia, which was thoroughly expected by the duo to occur in the next few decades. In the first days of the new year, Ludendorff briefed the House Committee of Foreign Affairs that Russia was a beaten enemy, and that victory would soon follow in the West, and that because of these facts... Germany had no longer any need to pay heed to the calls or concerns of allies or neutrals. Everyone knew, of course, that he was talking about Poland and the Austrian quarrel. However, when the Kaiser talked with Hoffmann, Hoffmann informed the Kaiser that it would be a fool's errand to take on two million new Polish subjects with dubious loyalty to the German Empire, and so it was far better to proclaim the lands independent, or, critically to the duo, entrust their governance to Austria. Hoffmann, a former ally of the duo, thus influenced the Kaiser to decide against the duo's dreams of grand eastern conquests, and they never forgave him for it. On a Crown Council meeting on January 3rd, 1918, in which the duo, the Chancellor, the Kaiser and Hoffmann were in attendance, Hoffmann again conversed with the Kaiser and persuaded him that if Germany took over Poland, it was going to have a bad time. The Kaiser at the meeting presented these ideas as his own, as Wilhelm II frequently did, and the duo insulted him cuttingly for it, claiming that they had been betrayed by Hoffmann and slamming the door on the way out. Although claiming to be acting in the best interests of the German Empire, the duo could not convince the Kaiser of the necessity of Poland as a permanent element of the German Empire. Hoffmann, and now the Kaiser, simply believed that getting Poland was a step too far. But Hindenburg persisted, sending letter after letter to the Kaiser, in which he insisted that Germany required a harsh stance against Russia and her former territories if she was to ever have a sustained peace while the final offensive occurred in the West. He wrote to the Kaiser on January 7, 1918, It is the Majesty's exalted right to decide, but Your Majesty will not demand that upright men, who have faithfully served Your Majesty and the country, should lend their authority and their names to acts which, they are profoundly convinced, are dangerous to the crown and empire. Your Majesty will not expect me to submit proposals for operations which are among the most difficult in history, unless they are absolutely necessary for the attainment of definite military political goals. Most humbly, I beg Your Majesty to decide on the fundamental principle. Personal considerations regarding Ludendorff and myself cannot be allowed to count in matters touching the needs of the state. Meanwhile, the negotiations with the Russians continued, and though the Western powers refused point-blank the requests of Austrian Rep. Count Cernan for a complete peace, the Central powers were nonetheless positive, if in a bit of a rush to get everything finalised in time. Cernan's memoirs contain startling accounts of the men who, as Bolsheviks, were leaders of the most radical transformation of government the world has ever seen, 
and who, as communist revolutionaries, were both the political opposites and political enemies of the men they negotiated with, who feared deeply the communist ideology would spread as rapidly as the Bolsheviks claimed, and that soon revolution, in its terrible, quaking glory, would spread worldwide. Zernin recounts in his memoirs on one of the delegates, Adolf Yoffi, who represented the Russian delegation in Brest-Litovsk. The leader of the Russian delegation is a Jew named Yoffi, who has recently been released from Siberia. After the meal, I had a first conversation with Mr. Yoffi. His whole theory is simply based on the universal application of the right of self-governance of nations in the broadest form. The thus liberated nations then had to be brought to love each other. I advised him that we would not attempt to imitate the Russian example, and that we likewise would not tolerate a meddling in our internal affairs. If he continued to hold on his utopian viewpoints, the peace would not be possible, and then he would be well advised to take the next train back to Siberia. Mr. Yaffe looked astonishingly at me, and then was silent for a while. Then he continued in a tone I shall never forget, and said, I very much hope that we will be able to raise the revolution also in your country. Perhaps an extract I found the most hilarious was the one in which Kuhlman, Germany's foreign minister, described the presence of Maria Spiridonova, an infamous Russian revolutionary, at the delegation. The Muscovites had a woman as a delegate, of course simply for propaganda reasons. She had shot a governor who had been unpopular among the leftists, and was not sentenced to death, but to lifelong imprisonment due to the mild czarist practice. This person, who looked like an elderly housekeeper, was apparently a simple-minded fanatic. Detailed to Prince Leopold of Bavaria, who sat next to her at the dinner table and heard how she conducted the assault. She demonstrated with the menu card in her left hand how she handed the petition to the general governor. He was an evil man, she explained, and shot him from beneath the petition with a revolver in her right hand. Prince Leopold listened in a friendly way, as if vividly interested in the murderer's story. But the negotiations were all for nothing, as the Bolsheviks, even when supported by Leon Trotsky at their head, could achieve nothing against the harsh demands of the Central Power reps. Eventually, on February 10, 1918, Leon Trotsky announced not capitulation to the demands, but his refusal to comply with any of them, while simultaneously declaring that the war was over, later summed up as a position of no war, no peace. But the German delegation did not accept this and the duo was infuriated to hear that the last three months had led to nothing but words in the East. At a meeting on February 13th, while civilian and military leaders of Germany met to discuss what the next course of action should be, Hindenburg pressured them into seeing that the offensive in the East must be renewed, if only to teach the new Russian government the appropriate way to deal with its betters in future, but mainly because this new Russian government, clearly on the ropes, was holding back territory which the duo believed was ripe for the taking by force, rather than stalled diplomacy. He had a hard time convincing those present that the answer to Germany's now considerable woes was a resumption of the offensive in the East. Those present at the time were undoubtedly considering US President Woodrow Wilson's proposal for peace, the 14 points, in which key ideas and US war aims, like self-determination and democratic peace theory, were put forward. The carrot of a US-sponsored peace deal had been dangled in front of Germany in the year before, and this time it once again brought with it dividing ideals and much pressure on the Kaiser himself, who, as the Emperor of Germany, 
was singled out as the individual responsible for the well-being of its peoples, and who was meant to be capable of recognising when a war was lost, however difficult that may be. But so considerable was the duo's influence that Hindenburg got his way, and the German offensive began its smashing of Russia on February 18th. It was a devastating five-day offensive, as Russia's forces melted away under the chaos of internal civil war and non-existent strategy. It only lasted until February 23rd, when the Russian delegation realised it had little option other than to accede to the German demands. It was a catastrophic decision by the Russians to attempt to simply bow out of the talks in the first place, and as a result, they were forced to sign worse deals than they had originally refused. But it was not a good thing for Germany either. Though it had acquired a vast amount of land, nearly a million and a quarter square miles, and the dream of the German Empire had apparently come to pass, the underlying problems of Germany's worldwide situation were only exasperated by the final Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, which was officially signed on the 3rd of March 1918. Robert Asprey notes on the treaty itself. Quote, It was one of the silliest and most dangerous treaties ever. In direct contrast to the positive goals of Wilson's 14 points, it was a declaration of German and Austrian arrogance and future intentions. Accepted even by the Social Democrats of the Reichstag to their enduring shame, it flashed the brutality of German greed to the world. This was to be the fate of Belgium, France, Britain and Italy should Germany win the war. It also set a precedent, fatal to Germany, for harsh terms in case the Allies emerged on top. The terms of the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk and the later Treaty of Bucharest with Romania were even more ruthless than the terms of the 1919 Treaty of Versailles, which several generations of German historians have since used to justify Germany's irresponsible political behaviour that led directly to the takeover of government by Adolf Hitler. End quote. Before examining the sources, I myself imagined the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk as the last victory for a Germany that had spent years solidly campaigning against Russia. However, through this new lens, I am becoming more and more convinced that the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk was not a victory at all. It was instead the fruits of an all-controlling duo who were out of touch with the world's sympathies and who never reckoned for its consequences. So sure was the duo of victory that they at once discarded all proper means for negotiation, and instead of acting appropriately, as international law would have required, they went all for broke, drunk with optimism because they operated under the lie that 1918 would be the year that the hammer came down in the West. It had never occurred to me before that brest was a trendsetter in its harshness of terms, but that does make sense. The Allies had been given yet another example of why peace without anything but total German capitulation would be a bad idea. Germany's duo could wonder at why the world had turned against it, but it wasn't because the Allied propaganda was operating in a sneaky, manipulative fashion as theirs often did. So offensive was the way in which Germany conducted itself, so outrageous were the terms it imposed upon its defeated foes, that the Allies merely had to report on the events as they happened. By 1918, German propaganda was writing itself. But it wasn't just the propaganda cost that the Germans had incurred. Somehow, the duo had managed to turn the apparent victory over Russia into a logistical defeat. The next phase of the duo's plan, grand offensives in the West, required an overwhelming superiority in numbers, be they men or material. But the duo had committed a serious blunder by implementing the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk, 
as the spoils of Eastern victory ended up ruining their future plans for total victory. As Hedjo Holborn, in his book A History of Modern Germany, 1840-1945, explains, Quote, in order to realise his dreams of a European empire, Ludendorff eventually left about a million men in the east. It is true that some of these troops were second-rate and unfit for combat on the Western Front, although in the summer of 1918, half of the Eastern divisions were sent to the West. Ludendorff's political ambition vitiated his military judgement. In March 1918, 192 German divisions faced 170 Allied divisions in the West. In actual strength, though, the two sides were practically equal. The German army was weak in transport, and both the British and French air forces were much stronger in numbers than their German counterparts. End quote. Robert Asprey also notes the strain that the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk placed on the already strained resources of the German Empire. Quote, Ludendorff's military lead motive since the outbreak of the Russian Revolution had been peace in the East in order to gain troops for the West. Yet this piece of violence created a gigantic salient that had to be defended. Troops would shortly be sent to Finland to put down a Bolshevik revolt and pave the way for future German control of the country. Troops to Batum and Baku and Georgia and Azerbaijan respectively to protect oil supplies, troops to Odessa, troops to keep the fragile peace in Romania, troops to support the German-backed government in the Ukraine, troops to Lithuania, Kurland, Livonia, Estonia, and all a million German soldiers remained in the Eastern Theatre until October 1918. The problems for heavy German investment in the East, even as Russia was meant to be beaten, provided another disconcerting side effect for German soldiers serving there. As John Lee explains, quote, Even at the height of the crisis in the West, in the autumn of 1918, Germany was too heavily engaged in the East to release troops in any significant numbers for service there. There was more than a hint that the Eastern troops were so heavily infected with socialist ideas by then that they would constitute an even greater danger to the fatherland. End quote. The original reason Lenin had not been as concerned as he should have been to the harsh, damaging nature of the Treaty of Brest-Litovsk was because he truly believed that Germany, much like the rest of the European countries, would soon collapse into the same socialist turmoil that Russia had, partly due to war weariness, but also because the communist, Marxist, Leninist ideals were said to be so catchy and relevant to the time that it was only a matter of time before years of wrongs were righted and revolution occurred. But Lenin's plan for worldwide revolution backfired, as the socialist elements of Germany, which the GSO feared, were kept under control, for the moment at least, while Germany was told to get ready for what the duo genuinely believed was the final push towards a glorious victory in his wretched war. What the plan did contain was a clever strategy of attacking the point where the Anglo-French armies met, driving a wedge between the two, wheeling up towards the coast, and forcing the Brits out, then moving back down and seizing Paris, defeating the French, and forcing an armistice. What the plan did not contain was any sense of realism. German soldiers were expected to move as fast as they had done on the Marne in 1914. They were expected to make up for the deficiencies in horses and comrades with sheer grit and determination, while their rations continued to fall as the months went on, and would only get worse as the German lines of communication grew more and more stretched. An attack in the West was criticised by some senior officers lucky enough to be on leave in Berlin, and when Ludendorff heard what they had to say he was enraged, and tried to impress upon commanders thereafter the necessity of keeping morale up, even when one did not fully understand the tactics in question. Crown Prince Rupert of Bavaria was one such commander who, 
having distinguished himself as a sensible, realistic and conscientious leader, argued for a different tactic altogether, to ease the pressure on Austria by first removing the Allied Salonican front from the equation, while simultaneously attacking in northern Italy, forcing the Franco-Brits to push the door of offensives on the Western Front open once again. While they did that, Italy would be defeated, along with Greece, whose territory could be annexed or partitioned through an Austro-Bulgarian-Turkish agreement, and the full attention of Bulgaria, Turkey, Germany and Austria-Hungary could then turn west. Even then, Rupert argued, victory was to take the form of a negotiated peace, because even if the Central Powers did all of the above, they still would not have the power to decisively defeat the Allies, who by the time every other front was sorted out, would be joined by the Americans. Rupert sent a warning to the Kaiser before the duo's planned offensive began on March 21st, 1918. We still suffer two evils that are beyond remedy. The gradually increasing shortage of troop replacements and horses, which would only become worse. We indeed are in a position to strike a few powerful blows at the enemy in the West, but scarcely enough to bring on a decisive defeat. Thus, it is expected that the battle, within a few months, will once again become a tedious war of position. Who will finally win depends above all on who is able to make do the longest with his effective manpower, and in this respect I am convinced that the enemy is better off thanks to the Americans, who of course can become effective only gradually. The duo, Ludendorff especially, had failed to even state the end goal of his objective. Most knew that the hoped for result was victory in the west, but incredibly, at no point did Ludendorff point at a map of Flanders and gesture that the German armies should stop there. This was probably due to the expected counterattacks more than anything else, but the plan still suffered from its near-complete separation from the realities of the West. Robert Asprey notes that, quote, Almost from the moment of its inception, Ludendorff's strategy began falling victim to vagueness, end quote. But Asprey also provides a damning portrayal of the German plans and the limited chance they had for success, which, as someone who had previously been under the impression that the ferocious German advance was only stopped by the Americans, and we can thank the History Channel for that, I found positively eye-opening. He notes, quote, France and Britain were bending but were far from broken. Despite the submarine campaign, now visibly waning because of ever more effective countermeasures, Britain was a long way from starvation. A massive German victory might well have altered the national wills to resist, although this was improbable in view of the American colossus rapidly coming to the fore. But a massive German victory was highly doubtful. Ludendorff enjoyed only a slight superiority in numbers, and would be hard put to find replacements to what would certainly be heavy casualties. Contrary to Ludendorff's later statement that the ground would offer no difficulties, two of the three armies involved would be crossing the old Somme battlefield. The troops would have to move over cratered terrain, cut by hundreds of miles of crumpled, rat-filled trenches, and holding thousands of unexploded shells, toxic barbed wire, and stinking piles of dead men and horses, obstacles that would benefit the defence. But that wasn't all. Even if the Germans managed to push past the old graveyards of 1915, 16 and 17, they would then be met with new, even harder challenges, made all the more difficult by the deficiencies within the German Empire itself, that manifested itself in a lack of speed, food and rearguard defence. Asprey continues his condemnation. Quote, if the attack reached open country, division commanders lacked the mobility necessary for rapid exploitation. The German army possessed only 35,000 trucks, 
and most of these had iron wheels, which quickly tore up fragile roads and were not suitable to move troops in. The army was very short of horses, and those they had were malnourished and weak, scarcely up to the task of pulling heavy guns long distances over difficult terrain. The enemy was numerically superior in artillery, airplanes and tanks, the Germans having only a handful of the latter. So it would not be a swift action, and in view of the enemy's excellent road and rail complex, Haig would have plenty of time to call in British reinforcements from the north and French reinforcements from the south. End quote. As the time for the offensive drew nearer, Ludendorff became more and more agitated. When Crown Prince Rupert pressed him for further objectives after the breach had been made in the Franco-British lines, he angrily responded, We make a hole, and the rest will take care of itself. Germany was committing itself to its final offensive act on the Western Front, one which only Ludendorff himself seemed completely familiar with. The American factor is something of a bone of contention to historians. While nobody would claim that America simply jumped on the bandwagon and claimed victory, after the French, Brits and Italians did the legwork in 1918, sources do vary as to exactly how much the American contribution is to thank for eventual Allied victory. Some, like Nigel Smith in his book The USA, 1917-1918, to claim that America came to the rescue of the Allies just in time. Quote, The US military contribution to the war was very significant and proved crucial in revitalizing Allied armies Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market along the Western Front. In July 1918, American troops saved Paris from a German advance. The US Army in France, led by General Pershing, moved against the Germans on the Southern Front and, by the end of September, a million and a quarter American soldiers were fighting in France. End quote. Rarely do I quote a source for the sole purpose of belittling it, but there are so many authors out there who would have you believe that America saved the world from Germany not once, but twice in the 20th century. That is revisionism, if I've ever seen it. 
It also greatly annoys me, and I'm sure it annoys my other non-American listeners too, to suggest that by 1918, all the European Allies were capable of doing was standing back and letting the American soldiers do the legwork. Yes, American soldiers did make important contributions to the Allied war effort, and yes, when they arrived, American soldiers were given some of the stupidest tactical goals by their Franco-British commanders. I'm not denying that for a second. I just resent this American-centric view of World War I that I feel is too often portrayed as historical fact. Once again, I blame the History Channel. The fact is, by the time the armistice was signed in November 1918, the US had lost over 54,000 men killed and had seen some 204,000 men come home wounded. The most significant contribution the US made to the war was not what their soldiers did though, it was instead what their resources did. Vast loans had been granted to Britain, France and Italy to fight the war, and America would continue this policy even after the war itself the bubble only bursting with the 1929 Wall Street crash, when lenders needed the money and it simply wasn't there, paving the way for a worldwide economic crisis. But during World War I, the American loans enabled the Allies to acquire levels of production Germany could only dream of. Britain was the industrial war machine, geared towards the mass production of weapons, ammunition, planes, tanks, trucks and uniforms to clothe the raw recruits. America was viewed by Britain and France as the bottomless pit of resources, be they manpower, money or raw materials. The fact that America was becoming more heavily involved in the war certainly accelerated the speed with which the central powers sued for peace, but it was the psychological element of the American contribution that is often forgotten. Germany feared the results of a long drawn out war with America. America filled the duo with a sense of urgency that spurred them to make the mistake of the 1918 spring offensives. Even though America's power had not been used to its full potential by the end of the war, see World War II for an example of that, Germany would fold in 1918 because she believed the war was lost. Not because Germany was surrounded on all sides, but because in the long term, she knew she couldn't match America. That's what America did for the Allies in my view. She made Germany end the war before Germany destroyed herself, a la 1945. It was a psychological burden of expecting to be outdone by America in every category that brought the joy to the conclusion that the war was lost. It's an important idea because it goes some way into explaining the whole stabbed in the back theory that will become so important later on. Germany, those who wanted to continue the war would argue, was not totally defeated and she surrendered before her innermost defences got a chance to properly test themselves and perhaps grant her a better peace deal. It would be like Nazi Germany suing for peace after the Battle of the Bulge at the end of 1944, rather than continuing a war that was lost anyway. The duo, seeing the potential America had for the future, recognised Germany could not match her, and rather than continuing the war and destroying their country in the process, the duo argued for an armistice. Had America not been present in the Allied camp at the time, had Germany's duo only had to face up to the exhausted powers of Britain, France and Italy, it is my opinion that the war, while it was lost for Germany by April 1918, would have pressed on for another year or so, because if there was no nation in the Allied camp like America, the duo would likely have weighed up their options, and concluded that better terms could be acquired by more fighting. But throw America in there, and whether she contributes troops to every offensive or not, the fact that she will always be there in the background will be immensely deflating for Germany as a whole, because as possible as it was to wound the Allies deeply enough to pry a better deal off their hands, fresh, prosperous, giant America was impossible to defeat in Germany's current state, 
and once the offensives ground to a halt in mid-1918, the duo reasoned there wasn't much point in delaying the inevitable anymore. At least, that's my take on America's contribution to World War I. It's inevitable that everyone is going to form their own conclusions on the war and its course, and what America really contributed to it. Even after saying all this though, one must keep in mind that America had never been really seen on the world stage. It's hard to imagine this now, having witnessed the 20th century, America's century. But as great as America's potential was, the duo were far more focused on their immediate enemies, particularly Britain, whom Hindenburg and Ludendorff had grown to despise over the course of the war, mainly because of Britain's way of waging war was killing Germany from the inside out, and the duo knew it. John Lee explains the thought process Ludendorff underwent while trying to develop a plan of action for 1918. Quote, He summarised his arguments under three headings, that the uncertain situation in the East only released about 35 divisions and a thousand guns for a more powerful blow in the West, that this blow should be delivered as early as possible before the Americans became a factor, and that he recognised his country's most implacable enemy with the simple statement, we must beat the British. End quote. All the fortunes of Germany were placed on the offensive. If it failed, the duo knew that the war was lost. The other problems Germany was already suffering after four years of war had only worsened too. The blockade of Germany was still in force, and the German answer for it, the unrestricted submarine warfare campaign that had helped bring America and Brazil into the war, had long since failed, falling victim to an Allied surplus in ships that could be grouped into convoys to protect British and French lifelines that snaked across the globe. Revolution and the threat of Bolshevism at home was a constant worry to the duo, who believed that communism and its offshoots was the greatest enemy to Germany's conservative, imperial future. We move now to the offensive itself, which is split into four sections. Michael from the 20th of March to the 5th of April, Georgette from the 9th to the 29th of April, Blucher York from the 27th of May to the 6th of June, and finally Gneisenau from the 9th to the 12th of June. I'm not about to cover each day or section of the offensive in a whole load of detail. I think you've gathered by this stage that that's not really my style. Instead, I'd like to sort of skim over the offensive itself, and maybe go back to it with selected anecdotes or sources. Martin Marix Evans, in his book Battles of World War I, notes the new German tactics which would form the backbone of the offensive. Quote, The approach was to use small, specialist units to penetrate the enemy line and exploit weaknesses by passing strong points and allowing the follow-up troops to complete their envelopment and destruction. The leading units relied on light machine guns and grenades, while the more conventional troops that followed brought with them mobile trench mortars and horse-drawn field guns. End quote. Robert Asprey notes the critical moment that the offensive began. Quote, At 4.40am on March 21st, 1918, the German army unleashed the most powerful collection of artillery fire in the history of war. On a 40-mile front, nearly 7,000 guns, firing high-explosive shells, shattered the eerie quiet of a fog-filled night to announce Germany's final bid for victory. End quote. Operation Michael started off very strong, with German soldiers in high spirits and confident that the final push would bring victory. 71 German divisions faced 26 British ones on the southern British wing, and the attack was a devastating success. The Germans advanced 35 miles towards Amiens, and the French remained slow to reinforce the British due to Marshal Bataan's fear that a German attack was soon to be directed at his front too. 
However, what is often forgotten about these advances and the stormtrooper tactics that followed them is the simple fact that such tactics, while they did achieve success, were appallingly costly for the Germans. And, in the first sign of things to come, the Germans advanced too fast for their supply lines to keep up with them and soon became exhausted. In the first week alone, these problems were apparent, yet they were to plague the German offensives throughout the campaign. Ludendorff ended Michael on April 5th after it had stopped short of capturing Amiens itself. By this stage, the Allied losses were 255,000 casualties, while the Germans lost some 240,000 killed, wounded or missing. Hajo Holborn explains the nature of the first leg of the German offensive. Quote, After March 28th, the advance of the Germans slowed down and losses mounted. When their offensive was stopped short of Amiens, Ludendorff ended it on April 5th. But the main reason for the limited success of the offensive was the numerical inadequacy of the forces at Ludendorff's disposal. Still, the results of the battle shook the Allied armies profoundly. End quote. The next offensive was originally set to be called George, but the losses of the Germans had been so high that they named it Georgette instead, because someone had obviously decided that George was too big a name to use or something. Regardless of its name, Georgette was scheduled for April 9th and initially made great gains, convincing Ludendorff that the end goal of pushing onto the Channel ports and removing Britain from the continent was in fact a possibility. The Germans moved to gain some high ground in Flanders, but these hills were heavily defended by green British and experienced Belgian troops, who gave the Germans a very hard time of it. Initially, the French had been slow in getting up to reinforce the Anglo-Belgian forces, but Patan properly committed in mid-April, and the Allied defence was reorganised, halting the Germans yet again and throwing yet another spanner in Ludendorff's plan. The duo elected to stop Georgette on April 29th, with a loss of about 100,000 on each side, and a further frustrated German high command. Ludendorff thereafter elected to change his tactics. Instead of attacking the British and removing them from the war, he would attack the French, destroy their reserves further south, and prevent them from coming to the aid of the British. Then, Ludendorff believed, he would be able to defeat the isolated Brits and Empire troops at will. Ludendorff remained positive, but the glaring deficiencies of his operations had yet to be dealt with. His men were exhausted, and now held utterly useless ground, which could be triumphed as a victory insofar as it saw the Germans advance, but which was, in reality, an empty, though thoroughly Pyrrhic victory, because of the severe losses incurred. The Allies were indeed concerned at the German advance, but the duo knew continuing along with such a strategy would destroy the offensive capabilities of the German army. Already hideous losses had been felt. The Germans were far from their comfort zone of rear trenches, the artillery couldn't keep up, and supplies were hard to come by because of the anemic supply lines themselves. Still, Ludendorff believed, the German army could win if it attacked the weaker French-held part of the line down south. So preparations were made for this change in strategy during the month of May, as the days ticked by and more and more American soldiers poured into France. The new German offensive, codenamed Blücher York, opened on May 27th and began with the storming of the Chamonday Dom Ridge, land which, by now, had been fought over so many times that it didn't even look like a ridge anymore. But the German advance here was massively successful, and the French were pushed back all along the line towards Paris where the government there began drawing up contingency plans to continue the war from Bordeaux. But the German advance would halt for the same reasons as the others before it, as Hajo Holborn explains. Quote, In order to make it impossible for the French to come to the aid of the British, 
Ludendorff intended to attack at the French front, thus forcing the French to move their reserves to the south, while inflicting maximum losses on them. Thereafter, the decisive offensive against the British army was to be opened. It took considerable time to prepare this new stroke. On May the 27th, the Germans stormed the Chamonday-Dom Ridge, the blood-soaked centre of earlier battles, and crossed the Eisner River, and by June 3rd they had reached the Marne at Chateau Thierry, 56 miles from Paris. But by then the force of their offensive had been spent, and the pocket they had gained was too narrow for strategic deployments. In order to broaden this breach, the German Supreme Command decided on a new offensive, in the course of which it hoped to involve a larger number of French reserves. End quote. The entire point for attacking the French in the first place was meant to have been to draw them off the British and Empire troops and ensure that Germany could pick them off at will. But the French were not rolling over, and the duo were now getting distracted with attacking and destroying the French, rather than landing the killing blow to the British. Their chance had evaporated by this stage anyway. The giant gap in between the offensives of Georgette and Blucher York negated the elements of surprise or panic that Operation Michael had sown. The relative peace during May, while Germany quite obviously prepared once again for an offensive, gave the Allies a chance to prepare and realise that things weren't so bad after all. Germany had just lost as many men, and now held ground that warranted little in the way of strategic value. Furthermore, men were starting to pour in not just from America, but also from Italy, Palestine, and additional French-African colonies. Manpower was the battle Germany had long since lost and Ludendorff must have known deep down that the offensive capability of his men had been lost at Blucher York, and with that, the German ability to win the war. American troops had been serving alongside French soldiers since early May, but only in early June were Americans actively brought into the Allied Defence Initiative in Flanders, and placed in their own army under the command of General Pershing. With their presence felt among their allies, and boosting the morale of the French and British greatly, the Allied defence became more enthusiastic and enforced, while previous damage inflicted by Operation Michael on the British Army was by now repaired by replacements from home and across the Empire, as Hajo Holborn notes. Quote, in the early summer, the British Army that had suffered so terribly was fully rebuilt, and in the first week of June two American divisions had for the first time engaged in major actions on the Marne. They had given a credible account of themselves, and the moral of their French and British comrades-in-arms was at once greatly bolstered. End quote. By the time June arrived, though, the German offensives had lost their edge, and the worst of their attacks had been absorbed by ferocious Belgian, British, Australian, Canadian, French, Indian, and even Portuguese defence. American soldiers stepped into the declining German morale with an energy that spurred the Allies on, and which gave them the additional confidence and belief in eventual victory that meant Ludendorff's dreams for victory would remain mere dreams. Further German attacks in Operation Gneisenau on June 9th lasted just four days, and an initial offensive in July merely confirmed that Germany's days were numbered. The Allied counter-offensives, known as the Hundred Days Offensive, began shortly after on August 8th, and lasted until the armistice on November 11th. John Lee explains the moment Ludendorff's eyes were opened on August 8th, though it is fair to say, from the evidence we've seen already, that he should have seen this coming months before. Quote, Ludendorff stated quite bluntly for the first time that war must be ended. He said that the 8th of August had opened the eyes of the staff on both sides. The Germans could see how weak they were. The Western Allies had begun to realise that the initiative had passed firmly into their own hands. 
Hindenburg conveyed a meeting at the Hotel Britannic to convey to the Chancellor and the Secretary of State the bad news. The enemy had not been, and would not be, forced to sue for peace by offensive action. The best that Germany could hope for was to resort to defensive fighting and inflict sufficient casualties on the attackers to make them amenable to diplomatic overtures. End quote. Thus, the slow but eventual march towards peace was beginning. A combination of factors, at home and abroad, had ensured that in the end, Germany was simply not capable of fighting a war against the world. Ludendorff blamed the civilian government and defeatism at home for the failures of 1918, and would go to his grave convinced that victory could have been his had he not been stabbed in the back and betrayed by those who had no idea how to run a country. The imaginary world the duo had lived in for so long existed only because of Hindenburg and Ludendorff's complete separation from civilians and the average soldier on the ground. The duo knew nothing of their plight, and they surrounded themselves with pig-headed industrialists and bankers who inflated figures about economics and productivity, while sycophant generals manipulated casualty results and morale reports. Had they known the truth of Germany's situation, it is hard to say if they would have sought to end the war any sooner. But what is certain is that their monopoly on power, that was originally meant to be a means to an end, to enable Germany to effectively wage total war, became instead an obsession in and of itself. I am of course unable to quote the entirety of Robert Asprey's book, The German High Command at War, Hindenburg-Ludendorff and the First World War, but for the purpose of further reading you really should get your hands on it especially the chapters after the failed offensive, when it was clear that peace was necessary and the duo could not bring Germany to victory. The futility of what the duo did is captured well by Asprey. Quote, There was once a time when Hindenburg was cheered by the troops. No more. Neither he nor Ludendorff was capable of seeing their soldiers. Their world was a sanctuary of chattering telegraph keys, ringing phones, or sputtering motorcycles racing in with dispatches from some battered front. Their sanctuary was peppered with maps, spread in coloured pins, and fell by lines and arrows that sent thousands of human beings to death or mutilation in pursuit of nebulous nothings called decisive battles and total victory. End quote. It wasn't just the shortages or the military situation that would ensure Germany's defeat. You cannot hope to win a war if you are the enemy of the world. By 1918, there was very few neutrals left in the developed world, Spain and Switzerland being the notable exceptions. Germany's unrestricted submarine warfare program had proved disastrous for its diplomacy worldwide. Every year brought new ex-neutrals into the war against her. While the pool of German allies never increased, after 1915, when Bulgaria joined the Central Powers. The Ottoman Empire was being torn apart by revolution from the inside, thanks to British attempts to sow discontent among its nomadic Arab populations, while the Ottomans themselves contributed very little to the German war effort, save for the Balkans, where they were joined by the Austrians and Bulgarians. Turkey fought Russia in the Caucasus, but its treatment of the Armenians it encountered, as we saw in episode 20.7, brought condemnation from the world. Germany, by association, suffered reputation loss as a result, but the duo was doing Germany no favours anyway. While Britain and France had access to US markets and could procure large loans, German merchants and appeals for economic aid were turned away as the situation grew worse, increasing the sense of isolation which Germany aggravated by stepping up policies which made it no friends. 
We saw how bad unrestricted warfare was for German reputation around the world, but it didn't even achieve its effects of starving the Allies into submission, and served instead as another example the Allies could hold up as proof of German barbarism and the need to remove its influence from the world. Crown Prince Rupert of Bavaria was harshly critical of the duo's policies. He claimed, Ludendorff lacks any psychological understanding of foreign or domestic policies. The duo's control over every aspect of Germany, its production, its foreign policy, its military strategy, meant that only the duo could be blamed for the improper use of such aspects and for the failure of the war. Yet Ludendorff's insistence on blaming the civilian government, which he consistently belittled and ignored, demonstrates his refusal to account for himself, while Hindenburg should have exercised a greater guiding hand over his partner instead of permitting his reckless strategy and quite frankly stupid out-of-touch policies. The duo would have been far more successful if they hadn't acted like kings, shut themselves off from the world and its realities, and had communicated properly with each German department, rather than treating the warriors as a competition, and fearing the results of even the smallest levels of delegating, since, as far as the duo was concerned, only they were capable of leading Germany. Their monopoly on power from late 1916 to late 1918 turned the world against Germany, with Portugal, America, Greece and Brazil all entering into the war with Germany during the duo's control over the state. They didn't reform the situation of the armies nor provide their soldiers with the resources they needed. Their treatment of Russia upon its collapse provided the clearest warning to any nation that may have been tempted to seek peace, while Ludendorff's imperial designs on the east distracted him from the German goal and ruined any chance of total victory. Even when peace negotiations began, the duo failed to accept that they were on the losing side, and chose instead to cling to dreams of strategic holdings in the West, and an empire in the East. The criminal stupidity of German statesmen at this time was demonstrated when, on October 10th, a submarine sank a passenger liner in the Irish Sea, drowning hundreds of women and children in the process. This resulted in an angry manifesto being sent to Berlin, which demanded that Germany evacuate the occupied territories, end submarine warfare, and democratise. John Lee notes of the almost hilariously out-of-touch situation in the Kaiser's court, which by now resembled nothing but a farce. Quote, An indignant Kaiser insisted that the German people rally to their emperor in this hour of crisis. Ludendorff gave a fantastically optimistic view of the military situation, offering to stabilise the front if he could get 600,000 reinforcements and 100,000 replacements a month thereafter. Hindenburg now insisted that the German army must fight on to preserve the honour of the nation. It is not hard to see this as a cynical move by the high command to distance the armed forces from the civilians whom they had demanded should seek an armistice. All the while, German divisions on the Western Front were being battered to pieces under the hammer blows of the Western Allies while key units engaged in a series of fine defensive encounters, there were hundreds of thousands of surrenders by men who had simply had enough. Prince Rupert told the Chancellor the true state of the German armies in the West when he wrote that the lack of fuel alone will be absolutely critical within two months. End quote. Yet the negotiations continued, as the duo tried to claim that they were prolonging the war out of German interest, and that the civilian government knew nothing of the realities of war. Both planned to use the armistice as a chance to simply have a break from the war. They would only really begin to see it as the end when Woodrow Wilson's note to them insisted that it would be a permanent peace, i.e. surrender, not an armistice. 
Wilson also said that the Allies would deal exclusively with the civilian, not military government, and again repeated the calls for the Kaiser to abdicate. The duo refused to accept this, instead sending out an order without the approval of any German department but their own. It stated, Wilson's answer is a demand for unconditional surrender. It is thus unacceptable to us soldiers. It proves that our enemy's desire for our destruction, which let loose the war in 1914, still exists undiminished. It proves, further, that our enemies use the phrase, a just peace, to merely deceive us and break our resistance. Wilson's answer can thus be nothing for us soldiers but a challenge to continue our resistance with all our strength. When our enemies know that no sacrifice will achieve the rupture of the German front, they will be ready for a peace which will make the future of our country safe for the great masses of our people. When news of this unauthorised note reached the Kaiser, he was beyond furious. John Lee describes again the chaotic scene which by now had become commonplace for a Germany shuddering towards political oblivion and military paralysis. Quote, Ludendorff was freely abusing the government when the Kaiser took him aside for a severe reprimand for the insubordinate message to the troops and for the way he seesaws between optimism and pessimism to the consternation of all who looked to him for advice and guidance. The language between the two grew so heated that the Kaiser had to remind His Excellency that he was in the presence of the Emperor. Ludendorff went into his by now routine speech about no longer having the Kaiser's confidence and that he was standing in the way of progress. For once the Kaiser took him at his word and accepted his resignation. It was widely reported that when Ludendorff's departure was announced during the October 26 news bulletins at the cinema, audiences burst into spontaneous cheering. End quote. But so separated was the civilian from the military arm of government that many conservative statesmen were incensed when they learned of the intention to surrender. They had been so saturated with propaganda that they believed war would either end favourably or continue until the Allies broke down. Thus the ignorance of Germany's situation permeated all aspects of German government. All a politician had to do was ask the average Joe on the street what the situation was, and they get a pretty accurate picture of the grim reality Germany found herself in in late 1918. But nobody did that. Thus, the stabbed-in-the-back myth began to emerge because the left hand never knew what the right was doing. In Germany's case, this was because the right hand wanted to hoard power for itself, and was content to leave the left hand in the dark until the last moment. Yet, once it became clear that an armistice was to be sought, the campaigning that the duo had done for such an armistice petered off, and they suddenly became harsh critics of any talk of peace. This about-face was created purely to save them from whatever bad press might be associated with such a deal in the future, and it is highly likely that the duo anticipated some form of stabbed-in-the-back idea to emerge because of the complete failure of communication between the various elements of German government. Robert Asprey notes in this change in policy by the duo, quote, The convoluted thinking was nothing short of criminal. Ludendorff had known since July that his army was crumbling, and yet had refused to withdraw to defensive sanctuaries that would have allowed exhausted divisions to refit and rest. His insane refusal to heed the advice of experienced and intelligent frontline commanders and staff officers can only be explained by an overwhelming egocentricity that constantly poisoned rational behaviour. End quote. Germany began its collapse on November 8th, and what a collapse it was. The result of years of frustration and months of infectious Bolshevik ideology led to rioting on the streets. Across Germany there was total chaos. Kings, princes and dukes were abdicating by the score. Eleven major cities were seized by social revolutionaries. 
Bavaria declared itself independent of Germany as a whole and began to hold elections for a republican parliament, while senior army commanders advised what remained of the government that the troops could not be relied upon to restore order in the problem areas. Wilhelm II had attempted to cling to power by renouncing his claim to the title of emperor, but held fast that he should remain king of Prussia. Then a telephone call from Prince Max of Baden informed him that his total abdication had already been announced. Enraged, Wilhelm II climbed aboard his silver train bound for the Netherlands, where he would spend the rest of his life, and cursed the betrayal by the duo for the rest of his journey out of the country and into complete irrelevance. Picking up the pieces was a job done by Matthias Erzberger, remember that Reichstag deputy who had insisted on telling the truth back in 1917, and an armistice to be agreed upon formally in Paris in the new year was established. Thus, on the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month, 1918, the world was mercifully, finally, at peace. The Germany that came out of the Treaty of Versailles was determined to start a new chapter in its history with an experimentation in democracy. It wouldn't last long. Germany existed in the shadow of World War I until a revolutionary corporal, supported by Ludendorff among others, captured the image of what Germany could be. That old cliché of history repeating itself manifested itself in Berlin in May 1945, when the world was set to ruins once again. This time, it had been the work of one man, not a duo, but the results had been the same. The German Empire, created under the greatest of imperial ambitions, sank under the weight of its own aggression, and, after warring against the world twice in three decades, was recreated in the divided form that Frederick the Great had so feared, which Bismarck had made it his life's work to prevent, and which the convoluted, aggressive, and reckless policies of just a few men had made so inevitable. But that is not the end of the episode. We still have a few anecdotes to get through first. Well, three actually. The first is one which the world seems to have mostly forgotten. The Spanish flu that devastated the world so completely in the aftermath of a war that had already ripped its heart out. The name itself is actually a result of a misunderstanding. The flu originated in US military personnel who brought the virus with them to Europe. So heavy was censorship after the war when reporting on the effects of the flu, for reasons of maintaining morale before and after the war's end, that very little was actually known about the disease. The exception to this propaganda was in neutral Spain, where no such censorship existed and the full horrors of the flu were reported and made clear to the world. However, so effective was the foreign censorship that the impression began to emerge that Spain was the state worst hit by the flu, and thus the virus began to acquire the nickname that eventually stuck. The Allies were only too happy to see that their propaganda devices were working so well, but the reality was that the flu was equally destructive wherever it went, and it really went everywhere. The final edition of the Journal for the American Medical Association in 1918 contained the following sobering extract. Quote, 1918 has gone, a year momentous as the termination of the cruelest war in the annals of the human race, a year which marked, the end at least for a time, of man's destruction of man, unfortunately a year in which developed a most fatal infectious disease causing the deaths of hundreds of thousands of human beings. Medical science for four and a half years devoted itself to putting men on the firing line and keeping them there. 
now it must turn with its whole might to combating the greatest enemy of all, infectious disease. End quote. Over 670,000 Americans died of the disease, ten times that of the actual American battle casualties. The figures are astonishing. In total, some 50 million are estimated to have died, which at the time was 2% of the world's population. It was an almost apocalyptic conclusion to the worst conflict yet seen in human memory, and added further to the argument that such a conflict should never, ever happen again. The second issue I want to get into is just how much the world changed when the Treaty of Versailles was passed. Four empires have been toppled by the war's end. The German, Ottoman, Austro-Hungarian and Russian empires were now no more, and Eastern Europe was now a patchwork of independent states, based on the Wilsonian ideals of self-determination. Such ideas did not extend to the victors, of course, as Britain's war with Ireland demonstrated starting in 1919, nor were any of the colonies of the French, British or Italians actively discarded. The British were perhaps the real victors, in terms of land grabbing at least, as they could now boast an enormous land army in the Middle East, while that region was brought under the British and French spheres of influence. Grand ideas, like the worldwide respect for peace, were portrayed as completely irrelevant as early as 1922 though, when Greece declared war on the new country of Turkey. The League of Nations, the brainchild of Woodrow Wilson, and designed to combat the malign influence of war with collective security, immediately lost credibility when the US Senate voted to keep America out of it. Italy felt left down by the post-war distribution of spoils and collapsed into a dictatorship in 1923, led by the nationalist Benito Mussolini, who began to profligate a new set of ideals known as fascism. To the east in Japan, militarism began to take centre stage, as the Japanese Empire began to exercise its right, as victor of World War I, to exploit its territorial gains, and continued to greatly worry both America and Britain, who began to suspect that they created a monster. Emerging from World War I as a superpower was America, who had proven, by way of her psychological as well as practical contribution to the war effort, that she now belonged on the world stage. Her former worst enemy, Britain, now became her close friend, and the desire to expand the partnership grew until the US sank into the kind of isolationism practiced by Britain in the late 19th century. Britain itself was heavily in debt, and underwent a democratic revolution which saw the implementation of suffrage for all. Now on top of the world once again, Britain sought to do what it had done a hundred years before, at the end of the last great European war against Napoleon, i.e. build an even bigger and better empire. Only time would tell just how different the world now was, though few anticipated it so completely, change was on the horizon. Soon, the world power status of Britain would be eclipsed by its former colonies, across the Atlantic, once the 20th century entered its next phase of horrendous war. The third and final point I have to make is about the soldiers themselves. A book I've grown quite fond of recently is The Reluctant Tommy by Ronald Skirth, in which Skirth, as a British soldier, recounts his wartime experiences. The truly harrowing account is the best thing I ever read throughout my entire three-month research of this colossal World War I special, so if you can, I strongly recommend picking up a copy. Send me a message if you need help getting it, because you will never look at war the same way again. My favourite extract is a bit long, but I doubt you'll notice the length, so engaging are its contents. Though diplomacy and international relations will always hold my primary interest, second on that list are definitely the issues that the soldier himself faced on the ground, 
which is probably why I find this book so fascinating. The extract reads as follows. It was a sight which I would have liked to avoid, but there was a compulsion to look which I could not resist. What I saw might have been a life-sized wax model of a German soldier. He was in a posture I can only describe as half-sitting, half-reclining. Resting his body on the edge of a smaller shell hole, he had leaned back against a mound of thrown-up earth. But for his complete immobility, you would have thought he assumed that position quite deliberately, and, overcome by tiredness, had fallen asleep. Everything about his posture looked perfectly natural and normal, except that there was something you didn't see. You felt an aura of death. There was no blood stain, no bruise visible on either his person or his uniform. Leaning back, his helmet had been tilted upwards, revealing his face. It was the deathly pallor on that face which shocked me beyond my powers of description. Part of a lock of blonde hair was resting on his forehead above the two closed eyes. I thought the Germans wore their hair closely cropped, but not this one. There was a suggestion of a smile on the pale lips, a smile of contentment. I fought down my initial revulsion and went closer still. This figure was my enemy. He had been my enemy, perhaps, but he wasn't now. For this man I should feel hatred, not compassion. This man. He was, or had been, no man. He was a boy who, but for the colour of his hair and uniform, must have looked like me. I was 19. He probably younger still. What could he possibly have done to deserve this? One hand still held open the wallet he had been looking at before death struck. There were two mica windows with photographs behind them. One must have been of his parents. The other had mine hands written diagonally across it. It was a picture of a young girl. I was sick with shame and pity. These things hardly ever seemed to work out for me the way my elders thought it would. No doubt they would have expected me to be filled with implacable hatred towards any man in a German uniform to be glad to see one of my country's enemies dead. But it was not so. And when the thought came to me, as it did, that it might have been from the blast of one of our shells, one of my shells, which killed young Hans, I felt a sense of guilt almost overshadowing my pity and sorrow. On June 8, 1917, war for me changed from being just an abstraction to now being a personal problem. From that day forward, it became my war. I not others, was responsible. I would have to live my life with a troubled conscience, and only ten months before, I had been a raw scholar sitting in his classroom at school. My adolescence ended that day. Henceforward, I had to live and think like an adult. And that, folks, is the end of the episode. And, well, what do you know? The end of these solo episodes on World War One. I specify solo episodes because In the Works is a talk episode with Sean to round all this off, so I hope you'll join me for that. If not, then I just hope this World War I special has lived up to your expectations. It has been a long road, started back in early January, so I'm quite proud to be finally finished. I know there hasn't been a ton of diplomacy here, and I know it was once again World War I through the eyes of Germany, but I figure that's just going to have to be my angle for these episodes, and if you miss the diplomacy... I hope you were able to enjoy the other elements I covered just as much. So this is it guys, my name is Zach, and you've been listening to the final episode of When Diplomacy Fails Special on World War One. Thanks. Mom 
deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.